So welcome to New Community. My name is Justin Bowers, and if you have not been with us, we've been in a series that we called Wonky, and basically we've been exploring how do we follow Jesus when it's really hard to like the church, and it's been a struggle, and if you have not noticed, when the church and politics get all mixed up, it can create a mess, kind of like that, but public service announcement, it is election day this week, so I just wanted Chris Farley to remind you, um, we're going we're gonna to jump into some of that today, but as we do, uh, one thing you need to know that's coming up next Sunday on the 11th, we're going to be celebrating Orphan Sunday. Orphan Sunday is actually a national event uh, that we participate in as a church, and really we're looking at what it means to be the church that does what Jesus tells us to, to care for the orphans, the widows, those that are on the margins, and uh, many of you know we have a partnership with an organization in Ethiopia um, that, that cares for vulnerable children, so we'll be talking a little bit about that, but also talking about what we can do here locally. So come, bring somebody with you, and uh, we're going to have some fun in that. Today, we are going to get a little deep today, and I know many of you came back from the women's retreat, so you're tired, so you got to stay awake or I'm going to throw things at you. Um, we're going we're gonna to roll into this, but hang with me. I believe it will be worth the, the, the deep waters to swim in to get towards the end. As we start, I want to tell you a couple stories. First, if you were to search hard enough around the Facebook website, you could find a text document telling you the rules of content that they allow on the social media site. At this point, this document is about 50 pages long, um, but it started out back in 2008 as a one-page document. And it happened in 2008 because a woman who was participating in Facebook posted a picture of herself nursing a child, and it was flagged as inappropriate content. Now, I know half of you just got really angry because of that, so bear with me. That's not the point. We're going to keep rolling. This, this sparked outrage when they said it was inappropriate. It sparked outrage among women's group, and they staged what they called a virtual protest, a virtual nursing, where all across the country, Facebook's uh, female users began posting pictures of themselves nursing these children. Now, this prompted Facebook to try to figure out, hey, what do we do with these images? What do we do when this happens. And they had at that time what they called their site integrity team. Now, their site integrity team at that point was about 12 full-time employees who would sit around every day checking every image, every posting, every article that had been flagged as inappropriate, and they would make the decision whether it was actually inappropriate or not. One by one, these things would pop up, and the team would put together and decide what they would do. So they put together a one-page document that said, these are our policy guidelines for what we're going to do. Now, basically, what this page came down to was saying, nudity is bad, hate is bad, if it makes you feel bad, let's take it down. So, of course, things began to get worse and more frequent, and this team had to dig deeply into the gory details, the explicit details of what might be considered okay, what might be considered not okay. So the team grew larger, and they debated what was okay, what was not, what determines nudity, what determines hate speech, what is actually breastfeeding, what is actually not. Like, these are the conversations they were having. So here's the reality. At this point, from 2008 to this point, the team has grown as Facebook has grown, Facebook now has 2.2 billion active users, and so the team has grown from 12 to a measly 16,000 employees worldwide deciding these things. In fact, in one office building in Manila, they've outsourced contracted employees, and the whole floor spends every day sifting through a million bits of flagged content to decide if it's okay or not. Kind of complex. Second story, okay? Bear with me. Nine months after being accused of nine counts of sexual misconduct and admitting that he was guilty, the comedian Louis C.K. dropped into a New York City comedy club and began to perform stand-up comedy again. 
Now, he took criticism for this, saying that he should not have been allowed. He was, he, he was still under this accusation, and he admitted to doing it. Should not have been. But who really took the flack was the comedy club's owner. And what was fascinating to me as I read this story was that the comedy club owner began to respond by saying, hey, when do we forgive somebody? When do we actually say this, is, this has got to be in the past and we're not going to punish this person anymore? Now, I just want to be clear. To me, nine months is a long way from forever. But I think what these stories draw out is simple. When it comes to our broader culture today, people are struggling, and I'm not talking about the church, to figure out what's good, what's wrong, what's bad, what's not. And it feels like to me, collectively, we are losing our minds. Are, we, are you with me? Everybody's, everybody's there. We can all agree that like, we're just losing our minds. And, and I would say maybe it's not just the church as a whole that's wonky, right? The, the broader culture is struggling with this. Now, I want to show you, and this is the deep part. We're going to get through this, and, and so you got to stay awake. Everybody's awake, right? Okay, like five of you, but the rest of you are going to hang with me. So we got to get through this to understand. I want you to see where we've come from because historically, I think we can start to break this down, right? If you were to study history, you might see that, that they break history into these categories, right? So first you have what's often called the pre-modern history, which runs from kind of all the way back when humans started to emerge to around 1450 AD. And these are all loosely tied. You can, you can change the years or whatever, but these were agricultural societies. These were the societies that were very tribal, very clan-based. Change was very slow. They, they developed tools to work the land, and they kind of moved everything forward. Well, then, in the 1450s, you move into what's known as the modern age. And the modern age would go from about that point to 1940s, 1960s. People debate whether it was in World War II that that ended, or maybe a little bit later in, in kind of the 60s, what, what was going on. But the modern age was kind of this humanistic, human-centered, uh, enlightenment age. Everything began to be, I think, so I have the capacity to think, therefore I some of you had classes, way to go. I think, therefore, I am, which philosophically said, I am the center of my existence. I get to decide. I get to pursue. I get to make the world better. And it was kind of all about this movement of human society forward. So we had things like industrialization and let's make more stuff faster and make more money. Let's just go after what we can. Well, what happened next, and you could debate this, whether it was World War II. Some would say it was Pearl Harbor being bombed. Some would say it was the dropping of the atomic bomb. Some would say it was 1960s when Kennedy was killed. But what happened is that everything that had been good and celebrated in the modern age is now being seen through what's called postmodernism. And postmodernism is kind of this breakdown that says, what is going on in our world and how do we actually know what's true? We've got to do this thing that philosophers call deconstruction. Deconstruction was this mentality that said, pick everything apart, every system, every assumption, everything that you believe, pick it apart. And now what is true will be contingent on you. Oprah helped us understand that, right? Find your truth. And deconstruction and postmodernism started to say we have to break everything down. Now, here's what I would say. I think by defining our own truths, what, what postmodernism in, it has done in many ways, and, and this has deeply affected the church as well, is we kind of built this rocket, rocket ship in the modern age, and then we poked a big hole in the fuel tank with postmodernism by saying, well, we don't really know what's true. And then we said, let's fly to the moon. And so collectively, I think you have now comedy club owners kind of sounding like pastors. Well, should we forgive them or not? We have 16,000 people working for Facebook trying to figure out what's good and what's bad. 
And we've, we've kind of just struggled to know, hey, if we define our own truth, then we've created a vortex in many ways that's void of any solid foundation to stand on. And by the way, these are just two examples. Now, here's the important part of, the, of this for us. I'm out of the deep waters, okay? You with me? When it comes to this idea of wonky and what it means to follow Jesus and not give up on the church, I would say the church hasn't done much better at this. So often we're reacting to these conversations and trying as desperately as we can to dig our heels in and maintain our footing when the ground feels really shaky. Now, here's the good news. It's election week. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I thought. So, When it comes to wonky churches, often the number one criticism that I hear from my non-Christian friends who say, I could get behind Jesus, I don't like the church, it's because the church is too political. The church is too political. There's all these things and everybody wants to co-opt Jesus and and you think that if we don't agree with you or we don't vote like you, then there's a problem. What I want to say to you today is this has never been easy. This will never be easy, but I think it's critical that we dig into it. Because here's what I would say. I, I think if we were to sit down one-on-one and we were to start talking about, well, how should the church engage the culture? How should the church really engage or get involved in politics? What, what, is, what does that look like? I bet we could debate, and based on Bible verses, we could take a lot of different approaches that often seem in contradiction to each other. Because if you read like certain verses, Romans 12 too, it says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Sounds like Paul's saying, like, get away from it. 1 John 2.15, John says, don't love the world or the things in this world. 2 Corinthians 6 says, therefore, come out from them and be separate. Now, all those verses kind of sound like, get away from the world. Like, go live in an Amish community. Don't vote. Don't pay tax. Don't worry about that stuff. Just get away from it. But then we read stories about men like Joseph who took jobs with Pharaoh in in a pagan country. He became a government official. We read about Daniel who went to work for the Babylonian king. We we read about David who God said, I have made you king. And so we've got this tension in scripture where we go, well, how do we engage this? I think we could say that the relationship between the church and politics or even the church and broader culture has never been easy or clear. It's always been filled with complexity. So this is the question that I want to throw out to you today. And I, I know some of you are like, oh gosh, I came on politics Sunday. Hang with me. Because I believe this will challenge you in some pretty specific ways. The question, though, is what role do Christians, those who are following Jesus, have when it comes to politics? I think it's an important question for us to work through. Now, if you're here and you would say, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a follower of Jesus, I came on your political Sunday, awesome. Hang with us, because you can be really discerning in this to say yes or no. I think this is wrong. Or this is what we need. This is what we're looking for. What I want to show you, that, that for a long time, people have tried to answer this question. How should Christians engage the broader culture? How should Christians engage politics? How should Christians engage the, engage the world? One author that, that is probably the most well-known approach to this is a man named Richard Niebuhr. And back in the 1970s, he wrote a book called Christ and Culture. Now, I have used Willy Wonka font to try to keep you engaged in this relatively boring part of my sermon. Are you with me? Some of you are like, no. Okay, so Christ and Culture is a phenomenally impactful book. It's also incredibly boring. I don't recommend reading it. Look it up on Wikipedia. You'll get the gist, okay? Here's what Christ and Culture says. Niebuhr says there are five different ways, five different approaches, five different views that people can take as Christians to how they engage the culture. The first, he says, is Christ against culture, Now, you may recognize as I go through these that some of you, you grew up in these churches. Christ against culture says all of the outside world is bad. If you're not Christian 
If it's not Christian, then it's bad. So let's, let's just put all the bad stuff out there. Let's not deal with it. A lot of the times, this is the hardline conservative view. This is where the, the Amish religion or the Mennonite religion often comes from, that they say the broader culture is bad, evil, sinful. We don't want to engage that. We have to withdraw. It's also why your church that you grew up in said, burn those Rolling Stones albums. Nobody grew up in that church. A couple of you grew up in that church. And, and we think that music's so evil that we're going to sit around and listen to it backwards and see what we can hear, that that's often what's happening. Christ against culture. The second view, Niebuhr said, kind of on the other end of the spectrum, was Christ of culture. And the Christ of culture worldview said, you know what, culture's really not that bad. There's no great tension. Let's just engage what we want. Try not to sin too much. Be okay with it. This is where what's called liberal Protestantism came from, that they began to water down the message of Jesus because Jesus clearly had some things that he said, don't do that, do that. And there's kind of this wide spectrum. Now, in between these, and I'm going to go really quickly, there's Christ above culture. Christ above culture is close to being against, but it says we don't have to be against it because Christ reigns supreme. So our goal is to understand the battle isn't between Christians and culture. It's between God and man, that sin is the goal. Let's get rid of sin. Don't worry about culture. Then you have, on the other side, Christ in paradox with culture. Listen, Willy Wonka font, it's exciting. Stay with me. Christ in paradox with culture says it's similar to Christ above. We want to hold our loyalty to Christ. We want to take responsibility for the culture. But we have to understand culture can be sinful, but we need to fix it. Like, we need to care about it. And this is kind of where that lands. Niebuhr actually promotes a fifth view that's called Christ the transformer of culture. And what Christ says is, or what Niebuhr says is, as Christians, we go into the culture and we transform it. That our worldview says the culture is out there, we have to address it, engage it, understand it, and then transform it to the kingdom of God. Now, we're going to come back to this, but I want you to understand, at all points, no matter what view you take of how we engage the broader world, specifically today, politics, but how we engage the world outside of your faith, it does not work to simply say, well, just preach the gospel. Some of you, every time I say something about politics, you're like, oh, I wish he's, he's too political. Just preach the gospel. It doesn't work, and I'll tell you why. Because American churches in the early 19th century took that view. They said, well, we will not get engaged in this issue of slavery. We will actually just preach the gospel. But I will say that by being not political, they were being political. They took an approach. They took a stance. They engaged in a way, and they stepped aside of it. And what I'm saying to you today, often the options come down to do we withdraw and not be political, which is what some of you want. I don't watch the news. It stresses me out. I'm not going to go there. Or do we assimilate and say, let's go all in and go after everything? Today, I want to tell you one of the stories of Jesus that I think offers another approach to all the complexity of this conversation. And the question, again, specific today, this is going to be broader than this, the story is broader than this, but the question today, what role do we, if you follow Jesus, play in the broader world, and specifically today, politics? Because you and I both have friends, you and I both know people who say the church is way too political, I want nothing to do with them. So apparently we're missing the point, and apparently we need to engage this conversation in a new way. So I want to tell you a story of Jesus that comes from Mark chapter 4. Now understand, in this story, this is one of the most intense periods of Jesus' ministry. He is coming out of a chapter, out of a, a phase of his ministry in Mark, where the crowds have grown. Like he's done miracles, and people are like, let's go follow this Jesus guy. Now at the same time, his family has come and heard him preach, and they said, we think he's out of his mind. We think he's losing his mind. 
And the religious leaders were there, and they said, we don't think he's out of his mind. We just think he's possessed by a demon. So there's a lot going on. There's good in that ministry's growing, and there's stress, and there's burnout. And this is where the story picks up, Mark 4, verse 35. Here's what it says. That day, when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. So leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. So now pause here because Jesus is telling his disciples, we got a lot going on, let's get out of this, let's go cross, and they're gonna cross the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee, Galilee for them to cross was about a 10-mile journey. And the sea is about 650 to 700 feet below sea level, and I'll tell you why that matters in just a minute. It's really deep, like 150 feet deep at its maximum level. But all around the sea are these like 1,500 to 2,000 foot mountains just surrounding this really low tropical sea. So Jesus' journey would have been about 10 miles. They climb in the boat. They decide to go across. And he says to them, let us go to the other side. So let me just put this out there. When it comes to how we engage the culture around us, how we engage politics, how we engage the broader world, I think the first thing we have to understand is Jesus always, always, always calls us to the other side. I have to think this, that in the midst of this story where the disciples found themselves was a place of comfort, a place of energy. I think before Jesus said, let's get in the boat, they were like, man, ministry is going great. We got crowds coming. We got people showing up. The religious leaders don't like us. That's kind of what we want, it seems to be. Like, everything's good. Let's go. And don't we love crowds? Don't we love big gatherings, big concerts, big festivals? Big... This is why political rallies are so fun. Like several years ago, somebody gave me a ticket to go hear a president speak at his presidential rally. Now listen, I'm not going to tell you which president it is because some of you will leave the church. Some of you will tell your friends and we'll grow the church. I'm not going to do that. But listen, here's what I know. I love that event. I didn't necessarily love that president. I liked some of the stuff that he said. I didn't like all the stuff that he said. But I loved that event, the energy of thousands of people gathered who look at each other and go, I trust you. I like you. You like me. We all agree. Everything's good. That's a fun event. Crowds are super fun. And in this passage, I think Jesus probably, I think his disciples would have been like, hey, you want to throw a rally? Let's get more crowds. Crowds draw crowds. But I think what Jesus does is he's aware enough to say, don't ever get too comfortable with the crowds. And you know why? Because crowds easily become mobs. <laughs> all it takes is a few pitchforks and a lantern. Like, that's all they need for a crowd to become a mob. See, crowds are fickle. They shift in a heartbeat. Some of you can't wait till Black Friday. Black Friday terrifies me. Because there are people who show up to stores enjoying standing outside with each other and then ready to punch each other out because they didn't get the newest fidget spinner. <laughs> Crowds lose their minds, right? And Jesus knows this. this is how, I, I think he's wise enough, aware enough, in tune with God enough to always call us to say, we've got to get outside the crowd. So when it comes to those who follow Christ and engage politics, I think it's important to understand we need to be really cautious really deeply aware of herd mentality. Because you know what? Both, maybe all political parties go to church. All political parties go to church. All of them sit in this church. All of them follow Jesus and have different opinions. So if you're convinced in your politics that Jesus is only behind your crowd, you need to get to the other side. You need to be called out of that to uh, something that maybe is new for you. Those who argue over politics, understand this, don't love their country more than everybody else. 
There's something there. I, I think the danger of the crowd that Jesus is aware of is that a crowd can convince you that everything you think is correct. And it may not be. Thinking your party's platform is unflawed is a mistake. And, and you know what that means? That means complexity is okay. One writer I read this week said, while believers can register under a party affiliation and be active in politics, they should not identify the Christian church or faith with a political party as the only Christian one. What that implies is that to be a Christian means you have to be, think, act, live, say, speak a certain way. And most political positions, I'm just going to say this for you, most political positions are not matters of biblical command, but of practical wisdom. Some of them are. Some political issues are very biblically based. When it comes to racism, when it comes to caring for the poor, defending the oppressed, caring for the immigrant, that's biblical. But how we do that, which is what policy comes down to, is debatable. And it's important for us to understand that. It's important for us to realize sometimes we need to step out of the crowd, to step away from the noise, to step back from the chaos and get away. And you go, well, how do I do that? Where are my crowds? I don't have any crowds around. I feel like I'm the only one who sees where this country's at. Are you with me? Some of you need to turn off social media because that's your crowd. That's your crowd. Do you, do you know that social media, I hope most of you know this, social media works on algorithms, so when you click something, it shows you more of what you clicked. It gives you more, and you start to go, oh, oh, look, I'm right. There's more. My whole feed is telling me that I'm right. My whole feed agrees with me, and I just keep clicking, and I keep getting, look how right I am. Even if I'm left, I'm right. The problem is the person who thinks differently than you is clicking other things and they're seeing more of the same. And so we all are convinced absolutely that we're right and they're wrong and whoever they are, they're wrong and they're just ignorant. Why don't they realize? We need to get away from the crowd. News media crowds, right? They try to convince us every guest look, thinks, speaks alike. Turn it off because those outlets only want your ratings and your money. So of course they're going to tell you that what you think is right. Your work buddies often can become your, your crowd. Your family heritage can become your crowd. Christians, if you're a Christian in the room, I want to say to you, if everyone around you thinks, looks, acts, sounds, and shares the same opinions as you, you're probably doing your faith wrong. Because at Jesus' campfire at night, they had Pharisees, they had tax collectors, those people didn't get along. He had Simon the Zealot. You know what a zealot thought? If we just kill the government authorities, everything's going to be okay. I'm glad we don't have that political party today. I mean, we do, but not as public, maybe. But can you imagine that? They're sitting at the campfire, and Jesus is like, Simon, put the knife away. Like, don't kill the tax collector. That's kind of the way that it functioned. See, Jesus is always about what's happening outside the crowd. Look at the next part of this story. So they hop in the boat. They're crossing the water. There's other boats with them. This is what it says. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but think about this. Vocationally, most of Jesus' disciples, what was their vocation before he called them? Yeah, they were fishermen. How did they not know the storm was coming? Like, that's what I think when I read that. How did they miss this? Oh, it looks good up there. Let's go. Here's, here's what I found out. Over the Sea of Galilee, there were these east winds that would come firing down out of the mountains from those 2,000-foot peaks called Sharkaya winds. They were east winds. And they would fire down, and the cold temperature of the mountain would hit the warm tropical climate of the 600 feet below sea level lake, and they would create these storms out of nowhere, sometimes with 60-mile-per-hour winds. These disciples had no idea. And you go, well, how does that relate to politics? Let's see what you do here. Have you noticed when it comes to the political discourse in a country right now that there's a whole lot of fury? Have you noticed there's a whole lot of anger, a whole lot of division? Like, I don't need to tell you that. It is all over the place. 
And, and I want us to see in the midst of this story how Jesus responds because I think it gives us something and a way of moving forward in our response. Look at verse 38. Jesus was in the stern of the boat. Now, where's the stern? Pop quiz, participation, huh? The back. You were in the first service. You cheated. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on, now check, this is my favorite part, on a, participate, come on, come on, cushion. Jesus got in the boat and he was like, wait, I gotta grab my cushion. I love that, he's sleeping on a cushion. The disciples had to wake him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, I think he was like, what did you wait before? He got up, he rebuked the wind, he said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Now, there are several parts of this story that I'm like, this is fascinating to me that he would calm a storm, that there are these storms that show up that the, the, the fishermen didn't know about, that all this is going on. But the most fascinating thing to me is that Jesus took a cushion in the boat. It's like those airline pillows, right? That he, 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 I can't sleep on those, and some of you can, and I don't know how you do it. I wish I was you. But he takes a cushion, he lays down, and I thought, why does he do that? So I wrote a theology of the cushion this week. There's two theological points that I'd like to make from Jesus's cushion. Are you with me? Here's the first one. Jesus was human. He took a cushion because, wait for it, he was tired. He was worn out. See, in our churches, we claim this. We say Jesus was fully God and fully human, but oftentimes, we, don't, we miss the point that he was fully human. He was tired and worn out. He'd gone through some junk and some accusations and some stress, and here in this boat, as he's going on a 10-mile journey, he's resting. He's resting. He stepped away from the crowds. He stepped out of the world. And he says, it is time for me to unwind and it's time for me to rest. And friends, you need to hear this about all of your life, but I think especially today about the political part of your life. Sometimes it's okay to rest. It's necessary to rest. It's critical for your sanity and your emotions and your spirituality and every part of you to rest because the storm will get more furious when you forget how to rest. And our culture has forgotten how to rest. We've lost it. We're always connected. We're always informed. We're always on. We've got that glow coming out of our phone or our iPad or whatever by our bed at night. And it keeps us up every time it dings. And it kills our sleep because we don't know how to rest. And so what we do is we spend Monday through Friday going, I got to survive. I got to survive. I got to get through the next day so that I can get to Saturday and Sunday and just rest. I'm going to die if I don't rest. Instead of the way God set it up that said, rest so you can thrive. Rest so you can work. See, Jesus chose to rest. But here's the second theological point of the cushion. Isn't this good? In his rest, Jesus was choosing. He made a choice to live as a non-anxious presence. See, Jesus chose to be in the back of the boat where he didn't have to be in control. He chose to lay down. He chose to rest because he wanted to be a presence in the life of his disciples that was non-anxious. When the storm hits, it doesn't say, Jesus jerked awake and was like, oh my gosh, we're gonna die. He doesn't wake up and go, guys, what are we gonna do? None of you told me there was a storm. You're freaking fishermen. Why didn't you tell me? No, it says he had to be woken because he was non-anxious. And you know what he does? You know what, you know what the non-anxious person in the room does? They set the climate for the rest of the room. They set the climate. They set the tone. He sets the tone for the people in his boat because non-anxious presence is contagious. It's powerful. It's unspoken control and a wisdom that knows this. The storm really isn't that bad. 
The storm really isn't going to kill us. So for the Christ followers in the room, when it comes to the way we do politics, I would say this to you. Some of you, now hang on, you're going to have to pay attention to this. Some of you need to take a nap to become a nap. You're as confused as the first service was. Some of you need to take a nap to become a non-anxious presence. Some of you, all you know how to be is anxious. All you know how to be is worried, concerned, fearful, angry, divided, ticked off, upset. What are you going to do? What are we going to do? Some of you need to choose to rest from social media, from angry opinions, from even thinking about these political things. And you need to begin to live as a non-anxious presence. I I would say it this way, and I'm going to step on about everybody's toes here. Some of you need to stop stirring things up because that's how you love social media. If I can just make somebody upset, it's going to be a good day. I don't even like this article, but I'm going to put it out there because I know it'll get 100 comments. Everybody's going to be angry. Yeah, yeah, let's go. Some of you need to stop stirring things up, and some of you need to stop letting yourself be stirred up. You need to choose to be that non-anxious presence. So could I just challenge you practically with this? One, stop being paranoid. Listen, understand this. I love this country. I have friends who are incredible heroes of mine serving in the military. I have so much respect for them because they have made our country great. It is a beautiful place, and I still feel something powerful when that Lee Greenwood song comes on. Are you with me like that? I understand that. But I also hold intention that right now, I don't see too many political leaders that I look up to or would tell my kids to try to be like, and that makes me sad. That's heartbreaking to me. And I can hold those things in tension and say, you know what? It's going to be okay. I don't have to be paranoid about that. And then the second thing is this. I I would challenge you to just practice being a non-anxious presence. And so you say, well, how do I do that? How do I not be anxious? You're telling me not to be anxious. How do I not be anxious? Some of you, I know that's what you're feeling. And we could all just start politically by eliminating this phrase that I hear so often. This, This is a phrase that is repeated all the time. This is the most important election ever. You with me? I would just love to say to you, it's not. And I'll make the case that actually the most important election ever was Abraham Lincoln because there was a point that we thought it was okay where you could own humans. That was pretty important. I think we need to understand this. I think we have to understand that we don't have to panic. Now, some of you just need to hear me say, I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't engage. I'm saying we have to engage like Jesus as a non-anxious presence. Look at verse 40. So here's what he says to his disciples after he quiets the storm. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified, and they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So Jesus says, why are you so afraid? And it tells us they were terrified. I love this tension. Have you ever been in a fight with your spouse or somebody special in your life, and you're getting all fired up, you're getting mad, and they look at you, and they're like, you don't have to get mad. Are you, like, does that help? I mean, are you like, oh, thank you. Thank you for telling me that I don't have to get mad right now. You just calmed me down. I feel so much better. We're okay. Doesn't help at all, right? You don't have to get mad. You just made me even more mad. We were at Disney uh, a few years ago. We did the Disney Universal thing. And I remember all day I had to ride those stupid kids rides that were like just utterly boring. And some of you are like, it's Disney. It's magic. No, those were boring. It's a small world is a terrible ride. And I'm riding these rides, and all day I'm trying to talk my kids into something bigger, something more thrilling. Like, it's going to be okay. No, we're scared, Daddy. Don't be scared. You don't need to be scared. It's going to be okay. So finally, by the end of the day, I get them on this log ride. And I'm not kidding you. The log ride is going, going, going. They're they're starting to enjoy it, and it freezes at the top of the hill. Like, the boat stops looking down this precipice. 
and my daughter, well, I'm not going to tell you which one, just crumbles, just like, <gasps> like heaving sobs. The rest of the boat is like, we're going to die just because she's crying. And I'm like, no, it's okay. And I look at her. I'm like, you don't have to be scared. She's like, yes, I do. <laughs> and I'm going, no, you don't. I'm trying to explain everything. And it's not helping at all. But you know what? If, what if in that moment I stood up in that little, this is what I thought about this week. What if I stood up in that log ride and I was like, quiet, be still. And that hill just went zoop. And it was just like a nice leisurely stroll singing It's a Small World. Like, wouldn't that have been awesome? Because if I could have done that, then she would have believed what I said to her about don't be afraid. I would want her to know the same thing that Jesus wanted his disciples to know, that I don't function by your rules. I don't function by your storms. I'm outside of those things, that this storm looks terrifying to you, but you need to understand I can make it go away with just a simple word. See, I think sometimes we're terrified of the storms in our world, whether it's politically, whether it's emotionally, relationally, because we've forgotten that we stand beside the one who created the sun that will eventually break through the clouds and end those storms. See, Jesus is the only one who gives us permission to say the whole system isn't worth the stress. It's not worth it. See, when it comes to the political climate right now, I said this, we, many of us are losing our minds. We're losing our minds. Some of you, maybe many of you are convinced that if elections don't go the way you think they should, no matter which side of the aisle you're on or if you're in the middle of the aisle throwing a temper tantrum, you think that you're just not gonna make it, it's gonna be the end of everything. And what I think we need to hear as followers of Jesus, is that Jesus isn't bound by our storms. He's not afraid. Here's what that means for Christians at the intersection of politics. We are always called to intersect the broader culture with this simple thing called hope. Hope. There's a great theologian I read this week talking about these very things, and he said that for the church, the problem isn't that we're messing up the way we do politics in the present, but rather we're missing how we should perceive the world in the future with hope. He said this, the problem with the Christian political imagination today is not simply that it is predictably partisan, but that it has given up its hope to the here and now. He says, we are all functional utopians who overexpect from the present. What he's saying, we think everything should be perfect the way we want it to be. And we underexpect God's sovereign grace, but the kingdom of God is something we await, not create. We won't legislate our way to the coming of Christ. What he's reminding us of is this reality that with those who follow Jesus, there is an ever-present hope that says the world will never be as it should be until Christ is where he should be, the collision of heaven and earth, when all things are made new, all things are made right, and we don't need political systems because we have a king of the universe. And that's what the Christian is to hope for. See, if you're a Christ follower, that's the calling to live consistently with hope, and hope is always ongoing, but it's also not fully present until Christ returns. See, I want to give you this, and, and I, I don't have time to cover both of these, but, but you would say, how do we do this? What is the calling of Christians? There's a couple things that are very clear. First Timothy 2 says this, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for all people. And then he says, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So, so we should be praying and then he says, for everyone, but for kings and, and those in authority that you voted for that you like and feel good about. 
No, he says, for all those in authority, you should be praying for the ones that you can't stand, for the ones that you think are leading us to certain destruction, for the ones that you didn't vote for, and for the ones that you did. For all people, we should be praying. We should be lifting them up because, Romans 13 goes on, I don't have time to cover this, but he says that God has established the authorities. Now, we may not understand it. We may not understand why God has allowed or will allow or does allow certain authorities to be in place, but God has allowed that. And so as Christians, we are to pray for them. Can I challenge you? Can you spend as much time praying for your leaders as you do publicly criticizing them? Some of you wouldn't be allowed to talk. You need to understand this. Seven verses. I don't have time to go through this. Let's go back to the beginning of this conversation. I want to show you this chart again. This is where we're going to wrap up. Willie Wonka font. When it comes to these five views... Is there a way to really approach this idea of the church and politics or even the church and the broader culture? See, these five options are difficult and they often leave us with no answers. So what, what does Jesus show us in this story? I wanna go back to one verse and then we're gonna be done. This is what it says in verse 36. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along. They took Jesus along just as he was in the boat, in their boat. But then there's this phrase that I'd never seen before this week. There were also other boats with him. Now, I read this this week, and we were talking about it with friends, and I was like, why are there other boats? What's going on? What are the other boats? What must they have experienced? Somebody was like, well, did Jesus' boat have the storm, and they didn't have the storm? Like, what was that? And I thought, no, like, the storm was over the whole sea. Everybody felt the storm, but the ones in the other boats didn't have the experience with Jesus. All they knew was that there was a storm that was going to kill them, and then all of a sudden, everything was good and quiet. And so what do they do with that? I'm fascinated by that idea. And you know what? I think... Jesus' boat couldn't explain it. I think they probably were far enough away that they couldn't have said, hey, it's okay, Jesus said, quiet, be still. Now he's back asleep on the cushion, we're all good. I don't think they could say that. But I do think when they got to the other side and those friends in the other boats were panicking, going, we thought we would die, we thought everything was gonna kill us. Did you experience that storm? That the disciples were able to tell a story that now created a new culture that actually said, no, we learned something on that trip. We don't have to function by the rules of the storm. We don't have to worry about Christ being against culture. We don't have to worry about Christ being of culture. We don't have to worry about Christ transforming culture because he is calling us to create a kingdom culture. And they could tell their story in a way that set a new pace, set a new culture. And I think that's the lesson here. We have to stay so close to Jesus that we actually start to create new stories for those who are walking through the storm. You see, the challenge for us today is not how we engage the culture around us, but it should be how can we create the culture of Christ's kingdom. So when it comes to politics, when it comes to the fury we see all around us and the difficulties we have with constant anger and pervasive division and the co-opting of Jesus for ulterior motives, when it comes to a world that seems angrier and more anxious, depressed, and more downtrodden, we have the call as followers of Jesus to create something different, something hopeful, in the face of storms, something that rests when life goes nuts, something that proclaims grace in the face of shame and justice in the face of arrogance and self-seeking. This is who we are as the church. And it's time we get back to that because the world has seen enough of the other version. They've seen enough of that. Friends, and I know some of you don't believe this because of what I've said today, but I will never allow our church to become too political. One of the things I love most about New Community is that it is a mosaic of opinions and views and perspectives and politics and all that stuff, and we get to hang out together on Sunday mornings. And you know what? Nobody has died yet. Nobody's killed each other. Like, I love that. But, but our faith can never become just 
preaching the gospel without public consequences. We are called to preach the gospel in ways that invite people to the hope of eternal life and the joy of abundant life. Those things are deeply tied together. We are to love our neighbors and friends. Everyone, Jesus says, is your neighbor. Everyone is your neighbor. All the appearances of differences in race, ethnicity, nationality, political party accomplishments, all those things are deceptive. These divisions are illusions. God's distribution of dignity is completely and radically equal. No one is worthless. No one is insignificant. No one should be reduced to the status of a label or a thing. This is the changeless truth in our changing politics. You can argue about what constitutes effective criminal justice policy, but as a Christian, you cannot view and treat inmates like animals. That's not biblical. You can disagree about the procedures by which our country takes in refugees, but you can't demonize them for political gain. And you can argue about the proper shape of our immigration system as it's so broken, but you can't support any policy that achieves its goal by purposely terrorizing children. And those are just starting points. The rest is for you to create, to dream big, because the kingdom of God is real and active, and it is up to you to be lived out in this world. I'm gonna invite the band to come. And as they come, we're gonna sing one more song that probably is familiar. If you've been here for any length of time, we have sung this song, and it's the song Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Now, other than this being a Christian word, we tend to hear this word at Easter. And I want you to understand the story of this word. It comes from the time that Jesus rode this donkey into Jerusalem on the beginning of the week before he would be tortured, before he would be beaten, and before he would be nailed to a cross and crucified. And as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, the people of the city come out and they make this cry over him, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And if you've grown up in church around Easter, you've heard this word, Hosanna. But I want you to understand, this was not originally a church word. This was not the word that you said to somebody, how are you doing? And they were like, blessed, I'm blessed. Very Christian-y word. Hosanna was not a church word. Hosanna was a political word. Hosanna was a rallying cry that said, God, save us because the systems of this world can't do it. Hosanna, God, rescue us because the way that we've been oppressed by the empire of Rome, the way that we're getting killed by the religious legalism in Jerusalem, though, God, Hosanna, save us, God. It's the only thing we have to cry is that you are our king and we need you to do something new and different. And so as we sing this, I don't take this lightly that many of you are walking in a culture right now and it's nothing but anxiety for you. It's nothing but fear for you. And politically, you don't know what to do. And so today, we're gonna declare that together. Hosanna, God save us. But I also don't wanna miss the moment that many of you could care less about politics. You just need God to show up in the storm of your life. And you're just going, my life is a mess. I'm a wreck. I've got brokenness, I've got hurt, I've got pain. I can't even get behind caring about politics because the rest of my immediate life is wrecked. See, listen, listen, and I'm gonna use that, even that chaos right there. What does God say to us when those things hit our life? What if we find in Jesus the ability to become that non-anxious presence? So it's gonna be all right. It's gonna be all right. So let's stand together. I'm gonna pray for you before we sing. Heavenly Father,